idea of analytics, learning analytics in one case, and and、uh, business analytics, clinical analytics, safety analytics, whatever you want to call it, in the other. They're creating dashboards, creating heat maps, creating visualizations that are in service of doing better for our patients over a long period of time. So, welcome to our next Harvard Macy Institute podcast. I'm Victoria Brazel, and today we're going to be talking about artificial intelligence, particularly in the context of health professions education. And I'm going to be joined by Martin Pusick to do this. Now, by way of introduction to the topic, I think we know、uh, that artificial intelligence is everywhere and growing. But what does that really mean, short of science fiction films and lay media?、Uh, today, we're going to think about some concepts of terminology as well as the applications.、Uh, now, Martin Pusick discussed this、uh, at a recent Harvard Macy Institute Educators Program, and we wanted to bring some of the highlights of that discussion to the broader. Harvard Macy community. So, to introduce Martin, for those who don't know him, he's a pediatric emergency physician. Post call, as he's just reminded me from last night,、uh, he's also an educator and researcher. And from his Boston Children's Hospital profile,、uh, I'm going to quote here: his expertise is in human cognition as it pertains to education metrics, health informatics, and the longitudinal assessment of clinical skills. Well, welcome, Martin. Is that you? Yes, it is. Hi there. <laughs> Uh, well, look. Why don't we just jump in here? Because I think people have variable understanding of the notions here. Can you just give us a bit of a everyman's guide to some terminology here? What do we mean when we say AI, big data, analytics? Well, with the immediate caveat that、uh, my version will be one of many versions, and so that.、Um, but、um, but I'll you know happy to lay out how I think about it.、Um, You know, the ever since the Enlightenment, we dealt with data, and、um, and so what's changed is, I think, three things. One is that、uh, we can collect much more data, so that we can observe our, much more closely all the processes that we're used to、um, just、uh, just going going by without attention. We can interpret those,、um, and that's where the artificial intelligence comes in, and the application of algorithms to that huge amount of data. And then once we've、uh, once we've come to this new type of interpretation,、um, a lot of our actions can actually happen in the digital world. So that、um, so that there's this.、Uh, I think that.、Uh, People maybe make a mistake when they just think of artificial intelligence narrowly about、um, you know, kind of replacing a radiologist or things along those lines.、But、I think the bigger thing is that、um, that we're spending more and more time in this digitalized world, and there's a lot of data in it.、Mm, okay, so can I test that out a little bit? I've got this. Let's say an activity tracker that I wear on my、uh, finger. I've got a little ring, and it tracks my sleep. So it collects all this data about my heart rate, my sleep, and maybe it has other data about how much alcohol I'm drinking or what time I go to bed. And then it interprets that by saying, "Well, here's what we notice: is that if you stay up late, you don't get as much REM sleep. So then it might even be able to give me a little alarm that says it's time to go to bed earlier because you'll get more REM sleep and then you'll feel better." Is that a very simple example of what you're talking about? Sure. Just imagine, you know, you've got this device that can track every single one of your heartbeats or all your steps, and then those sorts of things, and it knows whether you're awake or asleep, and and so that suddenly there's this cloud of data. 
around Victoria. And as, as she goes about her day and goes about her night, it, um, you know, that data is being spun off unobtrusively, cheaply, doesn't cost very much money and, uh, and just sits there, um, and may be useful. And um, it gets analyzed by this algorithm. The algorithm makes some suggestions, and you maybe change the amount of alcohol you drink, right? <laughs> <laughs> maybe. We'll see. There's human behavior in here as well. But I suppose the other thing to take at another level is maybe the company that gives me this and tracks my uh, sleep also gets millions of other people's data and observes trends. And so maybe that has implications even for public policy and all kinds of things about the way we conduct ourselves. Is that right? Yeah, in the um, in the talk, we uh, we highlighted this example where uh, where the f- people who make Fitbits um, know everybody in California who's wearing a Fitbit, whether they're w- awake or not. And then it's suddenly at three twelve a.m. one day, a whole bunch of people woke up, and um, and the reason they woke up was in California there was an earthquake, and um, and what the Fitbit people could figure out was that the percentage of people awake in San Modesto was different than it was in Berkeley. And, um, and based on those differences, they could pinpoint the epicenter of the earthquake and they could, uh, and they could uh, really have a, you know, quite, a, quite a sense of um, a different perspective, I would say, on, uh, on what's going on. Now, they didn't set out to create an earthquake epicenter detector with their Fitbits, but, um, but it emerged from the data that was collected across people, as you've highlighted, as opposed to this Fitbit that was meant to just serve one person. And so I think what's what's kind of interesting is, um, and there are dangers associated with it, but the the idea that um, that these clouds of data, these shoeboxes full of data, can be useful in ways that we haven't imagined before, and um, and in creative ways that can be helpful. Yeah, exactly. And it's not just having seismologists quaking in their boots, because of course, we still are going to need seismologists. But I guess that does bring us to, and you made a brief reference to it about radiologists losing their jobs. This pattern recognition is also relevant to our practice of medicine, because some of the things we do are about pattern recognition. And I know you've looked at things like ECG interpretation. And what you say is we're getting to the point now where we are able to collect more meaningful data points and analyze them in ways that recognize the patterns in some cases as well as we've done manually or better right you know i think um Part of what we're uncomfortable with in medicine is that a lot of us got trained in an epidemiologic model at, at a time that data was scarce. And so that um, so we would take these small amounts of data and, and we would try to get away with collecting the smallest amount possible. And you do these sample size calculations and you would collect exactly that amount because it costs a lot of money to collect the data. And then, um, and then you, would, uh, you would have an a priori hypothesis and that would guard against biases and the like and so that you could make causal interpretations. That whole game changes when you've got a ton of data. And, um, and so that, uh, you know, within reason, but uh, the data scientists have gotten very, very good at safeguarding the old data dredging biases. And so that they hold out data. And so they develop their algorithms on one set of data and then try it out on a different set of data. And they can go back and forth in that sense. And really, in terms of pattern recognizing, start to surface patterns that are, that, um, you know, don't go all 
the way to a randomized controlled trial's ability to, to prove causality, but go a considerable, a surprising way to, um, to being useful in that sense. And, um, and so that that's the, the breakthrough. That's the secret sauce in these, um, AI algorithms that's happened in the, in the, to change things in the last few years. And so, uh, so it requires on our part a different way of thinking about it and an openness to, um, patterns that, um, that have been surfaced in a, in a very, very different way than previously. Yeah, because it seems like we went through a phase, and I'm just thinking about the black box OR now, the groups in Toronto that recorded everything in the operating theatre. And at some point, you have to just do this data dredging and go, well, what is associated with what? Because we don't really understand it. But at some point, you get to have meaningful questions that you can answer with associations, like do certain conversations between certain people in the operating theatre tend to improve outcomes for patients because they are having you know, good communication at times they need to? Right. Well, well, there's there's two parts to that. One is that um, you know because we've had this ton of data and we've surfaced patterns, that doesn't mean that theory goes out the window. And so that um, so like a qualitative researcher surfaces hypotheses by creating a data frame. That's what the that's what the Toronto people are doing with their black box. They're creating a data frame and everything that happens within the walls of this operating room. And then, and then collecting every single little bit of data that they can in the same way the qualitative researcher would tape record every single utterance that happens um, within the team. And then later start to sift through them and, you know, sort of to, to some degree, uh, either, either try and have, uh, build a, build a new theory from the ground up. And, um, and, you know, I'm going to torture this analogy and I'll get killed by Lara Barpio at some point, but the, uh, but the but the point being that um, that you can bring you don't have to throw away your theories you don't have to throw away what you know you can bring those to bear as well and start tuning and developing the algorithms in ways that take advantage of what you know about the world and so that those patterns we can um, we can really try to figure out what makes for a better um, a better operation by having these fine grained um, measurement signals that um that we couldn't sense before and um and so that that's the hope yeah and it's tricky isn't it because i can understand where the feeling of threat comes from because it shifts the expertise once upon a time if we wanted to know how to interpret a chest x-ray we went to a little online learning module and we learned some of the patterns and we learned to apply them and that felt very something we could do whereas now you're saying we need to have some skill sets at writing software as to how we would actually do this diagnostic analytics and then writing even cleverer software which would look at further predictions and what we should do about it and that sort of shifts the locus of the expertise is that fair? Well, completely fair. And so that you can see the operating room having an analyst who's fine-tuning these algorithms and whose job off to the side is to really, really pay attention to in a, you know, kind of parallel format to the um, to the anesthesiologist to the the little signals as to what's happening with the anatomy and what's happening with the um, with the stress across the tissues and, and the like in a way that um, um, God forbid is even more sensitive than um, the fingers of the surgeon um, if you will and again I'm getting outside my area of expertise but the but the easier analogy for me is baseball 
ball, right? You know, so that money ball thing in which every baseball team now has an analyst whose body type is not that of an athlete. Instead, it's that of a computer scientist programmer whiz who takes clouds of baseball data from an almost unlimited number of sensors and video and the like, and then makes sense of it. And, um, and what winning a baseball game comes down to now are these finer and finer differences that, um, in which, um, in which one team can figure out the patterns of the other, um, in a way that, uh, that leads to the, to a thin, thin edge. And I think in health, in healthcare, we want those thin edges. We want to be doing our, uh, making our decisions, making our surgical incisions with the, with the, greatest precision possible and so that if these tools can let us do that then why not yeah if we can just get over the threat it's very very exciting all right well uh now there is a little bit more theory but i thought we might think about that through the context of examples because i feel like there's two parts to what you shared with the harvard macy group one was thinking about health professions education and ai as a tool for understanding learning behavior and and capabilities uh but also then the second part, which is teaching healthcare professionals how to use AI. So it's not a threat, but actually an adjunct. But can we start with that first one? So if we're people responsible for the education of a cohort of learners, uh, how does AI potentially or already help us? Well, you know, I think that um, it falls again in that pattern of observing a great deal of data, interpreting it, and then and then doing some sort of educational action. And so, um, so there are lots of um, lots of places where, for our learners, we can collect more data. So in our own research, you know, that you alluded to electrocardiograms, chest X-rays, and the like. We, we, in having our learners do them on sets that are really, really tightly calibrated, but in a digital environment, we know exactly where they looked. We know how long they spent on the x-ray. We know exactly which mistake they made because they clicked on this pixel coordinate as opposed to that pixel coordinate as a thing. Or we can even get more elaborate and, and strap on eye trackers. We can uh, we can measure their confidence on some sort of sliding scale, and then in the background we can model all that with complex regression models that uh, that start to across ten uh, X rays, fifty X rays, a hundred X rays. Your patterns and your tendencies emerge in the same way as a baseball player's batting tendencies across a hundred videos show up and um, and uh, and can be worked on. So, um, so I think that uh, that all of that data being being pulled unobtrusively, incidentally, in a calibrated environment allows us to um, really, really get deep on the processes that we're trying to inculcate in the in the person. Now, in the old days, you just work for seven years at your thing, and then and then get all of that all of that knowledge in a highly random, highly um, uh, generalizable fashion, but it's really, really inefficient. And, um, and, you know, kind of society isn't tolerating those inefficiencies as well. And so that, um, so on collecting that data, on, on making these algorithms, the hope is that we can adapt the learning. 
so that if it takes somebody 52 x-rays to get good enough on a competency metric that we have faith in and take somebody else 84 and somebody else, you know, one of our studies, uh, some people got ankle x-rays, uh, got to their our competency metric in 75 x-rays. And then another person required 1,330 x-rays in order to get to the same metric. And, um, and I think in a, you know, uh, in a constructivist world where we take, um, deeply into account where everybody's at and then move them along to the same standard. These techniques have, um, have considerable potential to, um, to allow us to individualize what's happening, but standardize, you know, where everybody gets to in a way that's, um, defensible in, in front of, uh, in front of patients and in front of uh, other stakeholders. Yeah, so this is taking this theory or a principle about competency-based education and, and saying here is a is a tool for helping us achieve it. And I think the other thing that you're saying is particularly if used best, we can overcome one of the criticisms of competency-based education, which is a loss of the tacit expertise that is sometimes falls between the cracks of the identified competencies, because you can start to collect data on a much broader range of things than just how did they go on the test of the ankle x-ray. I, I think about it in, in terms of granularity, and so that um, so we need some breadth competencies, and we need some depth competencies, and so that something that's really, really, really important, then we need to spend the money to collect really, really fine-grained data and know exactly you know sort of how how well somebody has done you know high-stakes thing X, and um, whereas um, you know in in, in building a pediatrician there are there are, you know sort of far more things to learn the tacit things you've alluded to than um than you can um then you can specify in x number of epas and so that um so that that point i think that um that part of it will fall on our social fabric of um of learning and personal responsibility and, and those sorts of things Part of it can be aided by um, these uh, self-regulated learning within um, within these data fields that allow each one of us to um, to take care of um, the, the the things that can't rise to a residency program director's dashboard and yet are important for us to be the best pediatrician that we can be, or whatever it is. Mm. And this is important, isn't it? Because what you're saying is some of this might pertain to explicit curriculum development because we can see patterns across a whole cohort of learners, for instance, versus some which is the more personalized learning that you're talking about, where we look for the signals ourselves about where we might need to do some work. The other part of this that I think I got the notion of and, and certainly made allusion to it in your presentation at Harvard Macy is that we might be using data that we have traditionally thought of as quality improvement data, like what is the length of stay of Vic's patients or Martin's patients and, and how many ECGs are you interpreting and how and what medications are you prescribing, are you overusing antibiotics? And this is stuff that hasn't necessarily fed into people's individual performance assessments in the past, but now we can get some utility out of. 
Yeah, don't don't get me started on that that one. You know the uh, the whole you know the whole idea I think is nuts. That quality improvement is often one silo of the hospital has its own offices and people and walls and all of, all of that kind of thing. And then um, and then us educators are over somewhere else, you know, sort of physically and um, and uh, and the educators are concerned with improvement of individuals over time, lasting improvement, improvement that. Uh, um, that uh, that is forever, and um, and the quality improvement people are doing the same thing, right? So they're taking data, trying to look at individuals and teams and systems. And I grant you, but um, but the educators are getting more and more involved in terms of thinking about systems and the person, um, the person's interaction with those systems and how that changes the educational context, learning environments, uh, health system science, all of that. And so that um, so there's kind of, there's got to be a, a meld of these two things in which this, the idea of analytics, learning analytics in one case and, and uh, business analytics, clinical analytics, safety analytics, whatever you want to call it, in the other, they're creating dashboards, creating heat maps, creating visualizations that are in service of doing better for our patients over a long period of time. And so, and so as, you, as you allude to it, you know, I think that there are tremendous commonalities. And then the other thing that I would point out is that, um, you know, in that sense of going from a data scarce era where we needed certain kinds of epidemiological techniques to compensate for the scarcity of data to, um, to a time of data abundance, you know, drinking from the fire hose is this great metaphor about, uh, about what's happening. But, you know, you can think about it, you know, switch the word feedback for data. And so that we're going from a, a time of feedback scarcity, you know, kind of your annual review was your, was your feedback. And so that once a year you check in and just make sure that things were okay to, uh, to being like a baseball player under the microscope, you know, kind of your batting averages dipped since Thursday, what's going on. And so that, um, so that, um, so that everybody's watching you uh, from every angle and there's, um, and so that, and, um, and all of that is fed into a system that's intentional and really oriented to high quality care. And so that when the feedback abundance comes forward, I think that educators should move to the forefront. Feedback is what we do. We're really, really good at feedback. It's why it's what we've trained trained for. A lot of whole swaths of our research are about feedback and about well, how that feedback gets delivered, in what context, how, within, with whom, and um, and uh, and how to make it effective for the long term. And so that um, so I think we should just elbow out those um, quality improvement people and just uh, swagger up to the table. And say education has arrived, and um, and we're going to. Uh, we have these theories and methods that you'll want to know about, and um, let's have at it. Yeah, I, I think I did get you started on it. Just by the way, uh, <laughs> sorry, <laughs> I couldn't agree with you more. And I think it's been a big thing in my own simulation work is really being concerned about the silo of it, of it in education point. when we've yeah. when we've got so much more that we can do that is about the systems and the interactions and what has traditionally been seen as quality improvement. And I think your other point is good. We've had to do so much feedback in medical education in a data scarce environment and this 
makes our feedback data informed, which has got to be useful for credibility and just having meaningful conversations. The the SIM example that I think is, is, a, is a good parallel is the idea that SIM used to happen just be in the walls of the SIM center and um, and would create this, um, this uh, individualized experience well away from the coal phase. And then, um, and then with, uh, with simulation, in situ simulation spreading throughout the hospital to where it's needed and, um, and uh, again, feeding back on, you know, kind of processes of care in the actual spot and changing the actual care is a great, um, uh, metaphor for what what I would argue would have to happen within the virtualized data world where you don't have the the physical metaphor and yet the same thing is happening. Mm, Absolutely. All right. Well, I guess the second thing that we wanted to talk about was, sure, we're using this to improve the educational process, assessment process, feedback process. But then what about if we shift it so that artificial intelligence and indeed all the things we've been discussing become the object? They are the curriculum endpoint for our learners. And uh, I, I, there's a couple of articles that you reference, which we'll also put in the link to this um podcast. Uh, And this is from an article by Lee et al. According to economic theory, competencies that are complementary to machine prediction will become more valuable in the future, while competencies that are substitutes for machine prediction will become less valuable. So we will need to change the work that we do, and we will need some skills we didn't have before. So, uh, and the Royal College in Canada has published a very uh, extensive position statement on this. But, uh, yeah, what kind of things are medical or other health profession students going to learn in the past that they didn't learn before? Um, I think that is a super complicated question because it requires prediction of where you're going to get to. And so for the radiologists or the anesthesiologists, there's a certain amount of this that's already happening. You've got a machine that's uh, that can do part of your job, but not all of it. And so that, um, so that which parts can it do better or can you leverage and which parts should you be very, very suspicious of and, um, and, and take care of on your own. And so I'm, I think you know, in medicine, we've done that for a long, long time. Use dangerous technologies where it's not entirely clear um, how well they're going to work and where the edges are and um, and what what spots we have to watch out for. And so that um, I think it's going to be like a like a regression equation where there's a certain value to the to the clinician, a certain value to the machine, and then there's a third value of the clinician interacting with the machine. And, um, and so that, uh, so that we, we need to teach to all three things. We need, to, we need some clinical informaticians who are going to develop better and better algorithms. And so that uh, the clinical informatics training programs that have been around in the U.S. for a long time but are starting to become more and more common elsewhere um, are super important training programs. And, um, and so that uh, we need to you know, take the graduates of those and, the, and think about what they have to offer to the entire system. We need to continue to to train clinicians and clinicians to do well and and to do really, really well the things that a machine can't do. 
And so, uh, so empathy, communication skills, advocacy, um, any number of uh, things along those lines. And then the, um, but for every, for largely every clinician, the, these technologies, some aspect of this, and it may not be an artificial intelligence algorithm diagnosing, but some aspect of digitalization, computerization, um, data visualization is going to touch you even if you're a psychiatrist. And so that, um, um, so that the ability to interact with those things, the ability to change them and um, and use them in service of the patients and indeed of our learners is, uh, is going to be a valued skill along with the umpteen other skills that we value in our clinicians. Yeah, and I think this interface is important, isn't it? Because this won't just be a <clears throat> switch on and off to AI because you and I have been looking at ECGs that have a little printout at the top that says this is what it means, but we've also known the limitations of that and we've kind of thought about it both in the context of the patient and knowing the fallibility of the algorithms and the tendencies of where it tends to go wrong. So what you're saying is we'll need to understand this enough to know where it's very reliable and where it's not. Right, exactly right. Great example. All right. Well, then I guess the obvious question, we've talked about a couple of downsides in terms of people feeling the threats and having to, uh, I guess, accumulate some new skills and perspectives on things. Any other sort of more conceptual downsides, do you think, to this as it pertains to health professions, education and and care? Yeah. You know, I, I think there are a lot of people who have thought more deeply about this than I have. You know, the whole Facebook um you know, privacy, Cambridge Analytica, those sorts of evil doing and um, and what happens when you encode bias into an algorithm and the like. And there's lots of places to read about, uh, about that sort of thing. And there's no reason to think that we in health professions won't be susceptible to those as well. But I, but I think the, the ones where, you know, zero, one, totally dangerous, not dangerous, you know, that, that kind of stuff, I think that we can handle well. What'll be interesting are the tensions, you know, where there is no right answer to how much you should use a, use a machine, how much you should use a data report, and um, and to what extent should you um, should you rely on metrics to decide that you have a good healthcare system versus um, using art. You know, in the in the talk, we um, you know I playfully uh, put out. Two, two examples. Um, Abraham Bergesi, who's a, a wondrous surgeon at Stanford who came from Ethiopia and has a, a complete um, persona around humanism, uh, like many others do. You choose Oliver Sacks, you could choose and, you know, some of our heroes in medicine. Um, you can't even imagine in front of a computer, right? And um, and uh, and so that um, so that those observant humanistic um, cherish the person, cherish the story types of clinicians, and um, and then on the other side, um, as the evil, uh, you know. Uh, machine learning uh, despot, I had Vinod Kozla, who's, um, who's, um, who's famous for having created Sun Microsystems, and, and he's on record as saying that 80% of physicians will be replaced by machines. And so, um, so he's going to take all that Silicon Valley venture capital energy and work away at that, um, at that possibility. And so that, um, so that you can't entirely say I'm in this camp or I'm in that camp. 
ain't going to work like that, right? So that we're going to have this flow edge between them in which we're going to have to make arguments for why this thing should, um, should take precedence over that thing. You know, I think it's a, you know, what, what, what we often call a useful tension. You know that uh, that you have to recognize that it's a tension. You have to recognize that it's a forever tension. But by the same token, it means that as we evolve these systems, everybody has to get in there and you know advocate because it is a land grab. It is you know the the health care system that's going to that's going to evolve over the next generation. It's going to be very very different. And you know, kind of what we're willing to put resources into, and um, and what we're not. Sorry, I almost got philosophic there. So sorry about that. No, but I think it's important because I think what you're saying is this is going to depend on the political and indeed economic ways in which healthcare is represented in a country or across around the world, and that will have an impact. And I think the other thing you're saying, which is so important, is that this could very easily become a conversation just about us, and by that I mean healthcare providers, professionals, or people in the business, and not about patients and consumers. Uh, there's a great hope that this leads to a democratization and of access, but it may not if it just becomes about us and who's making money out of it, which is, you know, a very real risk if uh, prior things are anything to go by. All right, well, Martin, I'm going to ask you then a couple of questions then, uh, predictions, as it were, <laughs> with or without algorithms. Uh, where to from here, number one, for the field, do you think? And number two, for the everyday health professions educator listening to this feeling like, oh, dear, I'm, there's so much I don't know. <laughs> Just think in terms of attitudes. I think I think health professions educators are, are good about having open minds and having um, just a, a sense of that um, that premature closure is not a good thing in diagnosis and the like. And so that in this particular case, I think as we move it along, it's, it too is going to um, require us to have open minds and, um, and, and not resting on our assumptions, but rather um, having a different mindset. Artificial intelligence is complicated. It requires the, the statisticians to work with the computer scientists to work with the subject matter experts. And when it comes to learning, that's us. And so that, uh, but it's a team sport. And so I think that um, in your medical school, you need to look around and say, who's the person who's got the advanced statistical knowledge to be able to sort out these these little signals and what's data dredging and what's good data science? And who's the person who can write an algorithm in Tableau to make a dashboard that um, that ha- that makes sense for your your institution? Because real estate on dashboards is going to become the new political arena. And, um, and so that how you make your claim on your institution's dashboard for education, it's again that old saw, she who has the best data wins. And so that, um, so that we as educators need to get our education data. Um, the, the other thing is, is that this digitalization isn't going to slow down. And so that, um, so that uh, recognizing that it's a separate space and it's a space, you know, think about how much time you're spending in front of an electronic health record, making it smarter. 
And so that, um, so we all whine about it and we all need to, you know, kind of think about the human aspects of the electronic health record and the, and the degree to which it's dehumanizing the process versus the amount that, you know, when it, um, you know, last night it checked my dose of, um, of drug X that I hadn't heard about and corrected me and it correctly corrected me and, um, and I might have made a mistake had it not been for the logic in behind that um, that, uh, that sat over my shoulder and double-checked my orders. And so, um, so I think that, um, you know, we have a, have a separate voice and especially a separate, you know, honored charge of developing our next, uh, next generation and, um, and how we do that, how we articulate this, um, this particular tension will be important and, um, and will get embodied first in our curricula. Mm, fantastic. Well, thank you, Martin. That's excellent. And while we're just uh, thinking about wrapping up here, I am going to highlight and just to let you know, we will link to this in the blog post for the podcast, but a couple of articles, uh, one of which you are a co-author in, uh, but the, and it's entitled Developing the Role of Big Data and Analytics in Health Professional Education. Uh, Rachel Elloway is the first author and you're another one of the authors. And this is from Medical Teacher 2014. And the the other article that we'll link to is one where David Lee L.I. is the first author, Why We Needn't Fear the Machines, Opportunities for Medicine in a Machine Learning World, and that is in Academic Medicine in 2019. So just a couple of bits of further reading if people are interested in some of the concepts that are in here. Well, Martin, thank you so much. I feel like uh, it would be easy to underestimate the synthesis that has gone into your comments in what is actually an incredibly broad and fast-moving field. I think we're going to be hearing a lot more from you and many others about this topic, so we'll look forward to that. And uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you.